Our Heavenly Father, we ask that as we come to this part of your word, that you would be pleased by your spirit to teach us. We long to know more of who you are and who we are in your sight. And to see the world the way you see it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we hear reports of the killing of Christians, it seems like a world away. Because even though we've seen or, or have experienced some persecution in Australia, it's, it's nothing compared to that of our brothers and sisters around the world. In Australia, uh, we missed out on the introduction of a religious discrimination bill. Remember that? But even so, about the worst thing that can happen to us in Australia is that we'll lose our job because of our faith. Or, you know, that we'll be deplatformed, as they call it, or banned or sacked, you know, like Israel Folau was. But this is embarrassingly small compared to the fate of brothers and sisters across the globe. Some of the worst persecution is at the hands of religious fanatics, like in northern Nigeria, in Africa. Two weeks ago, 25-year-old university student Deborah Yakabu wrote in a class WhatsApp group that she passed her exams, quote, thanks to Christ, end quote when she was pressured by her classmates to remove her statement and say sorry, she refused. And so her classmates gathered around her, beating her with sticks, throwing large stones, and shouting, Allahu Akbar. And then after stoning her to death, they set her body on fire. Two weeks ago, But this kind of thing happens from the seat of government as well. In many countries right now, Christians are persecuted by the police and by the army. Afghanistan, China, North Korea, Pakistan, the list goes on. In fact, it is said that more Christians were killed last century than in any other time in the, ho in, in the whole of the rest of the time that Christians were alive. That's 20th century. And when we see such brutal persecution, it can easily make us wonder if God is still there. I mean, if he is there, does he care? Because if he can create the universe with a word, surely he can stop kings killing Christians. Well, today as we look at the third chapter of Daniel, we see one such ruler who threatened God's people when they refused to worship a giant idol. It's just another example of a ruler with a rush of blood to the head. But where is God in this? And who rules, really? We begin with chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and nine feet wide and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. It is a huge statue. To give you an idea, it is twice the height of the Kayama Lighthouse. It's pretty tall. It's made of gold. He makes a very large statue. I mean, certainly it is a good thing to, to build something 
and stand back and say, yeah, how good? I mean, often it might just be a sandcastle and it's like, oh, how good is that? And you walk away and someone knocks it over. Oh, well. Or it might be something else that you make and you think, oh, I feel I have a, a sense of, of, of satisfaction, or, you know, like, you know, how good am I sort of thing. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar takes it up a notch. 90 feet. That's, that's nine stories. I mean, that's pretty tall, right? That's a big thing. And he goes back and says, yeah, how good. But he wasn't content with just making it. Verse 2 says that he sent messengers to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue that he'd set up. So all the officials came and they stood before the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All the people had to come along. And it must have been a really big deal. Uh, some of you weren't alive, but I, I think you know you weren't. When, when, when um, the Australian Parliament House, the new government house was opened in 1988, the bicentennial year, that was a really big deal. Even the Queen came out. It was a, whoa, a big show. You'd think it was of that magnitude. Or maybe even the kind of you know, opening of the Olympic Games in, in Sydney 2000, maybe. I mean, that kind of magnitude. It was a big deal. And they weren't just to stand back and admire it, though. They actually, well, the king wanted more. Verse 4 says that a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. You see here that all the nations were to come together. Here's a trivia question for you. Can you think of any other times that people might have built towers in a place like Babel, Babylon, Babel, Babel? Yeah. Same place. Same kind of tower. And it says here, all races, nations and languages come together. You know, it feels a bit like this, doesn't it? 11, Genesis 11. Then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches up into the sky. It'll make us famous. Make a name for ourselves and keep us from being scattered all over the world. It's hard to imagine. I, I don't know, was King Nebuchadnezzar saying, you know, hey, let, let's look at some sort of reruns of Netflix and see what was happening back in Genesis time. Oh, look, they did a tower thing. Okay, that was a thing. Why don't I do one as well? I don't know whether he joined the dots or not, but as we read the scriptures, we're certainly expected to. This idea that you bring together all the nations in one place with one language, you know, what could possibly go wrong, they say? Well... The Tower of Babel was an utter disaster. And yet, even if it was a success, humanly speaking, how long do you reckon it's going to go well for all the nations of the world, one language, one ruler? Yeah, to talk me through that. You know, has history ever said thumbs up to that kind of thing? No. Bad idea. That's what the world's like. But whatever it is, when you get back to Nebuchadnezzar, you can't be sure what his motivation was for building it, but... He didn't want people to sit back and say, oh, nice tower. He wanted more. Verse 5, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Right. They were to treat the statue like an idol. They were to worship the statue like an idol, just like they're praying to the pagan gods of Babylon. And just in case you hesitated just a little bit, not so sure if that's a good idea, two minds, he says anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Um, you can worship or you can get cooked alive. I'll give you some time to think about that. 
Clearly they weren't just intrinsically motivated to say, I would love to worship that statue. It's lovely and it's big. I might have my, have my whole life bowing down. No, it's kind of like, oh, what's that in the back of my head? Oh, it's a gun. Okay, that's basically what he's saying. Who else has called us to come and worship them? This guy. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. A little bit of a contrast, isn't it? That's not the style of the king of Babylon, is it? And so verse 7, at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, language bowed to the ground and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It's kind of like a big game of musical chairs. You're going about work, doing all your kind of stuff, and you hear the zither, the zithering. And you think, whoop, stop what I'm doing, get down on the ground and bow. Make sure nobody else is watching that you missed your cue. It's a little bit like what, it's, what a Muslim country is like. I've been to a Muslim country before, and you hear the call of prayer, and it just sort of everywhere. And off it goes, and you stop, and, you know, it... This is sort of the same sort of deal. But in Babylon, right here, there's a bit of a problem. Oh, it's a problem for a few people, but it's a problem for us as we're reading the Bible because in the last two chapters of Daniel, we met these guys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They're Jews from Jerusalem. They've done good stuff. They've got a big, big promotion and they're high-standing public officers. But in all of that, they didn't give up their faith in God. They were able to continue worshipping the, the God of Judah, the God of Jerusalem, in all of that. And at the same time, they were able to continue on as a person who was well respected by those in Babylon. Which means that Daniel and his friends are now under threat. Because the very thing that they were doing, and that is worshipping their true and living God, the old God, and serving at the same time, yeah, yeah that's not going to work. And we then see that it leads to this, verse 8. But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed, dobbed is my translation, on the Jews. Verse 9. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Long live the king! You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes and other musical instruments. That decree also states that those who refuse must obey, uh, refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. Uh, so far, so good? Yeah, good. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom, um, sorry to put it this way, you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue that you have set up. It's kind of a, it's a bit of a snookering, really, to the king. But you realise the irony of this? The reason that these Jewish men got the special treatment is because they were able to, inter to reveal and interpret the dream from God, which then meant that people like the astrologers, like the guy who's dobbing on them, didn't get killed. This, this astrologer was saved by the Jews. And yet what does he do? He turns on them. He throws them under a bus. As he says to the king, 
they pay no attention to you. They now make the refusal personal. See that? It, it seems that the identity politics of the 21st century are nothing new. It's all about people and personalities. And if you can't win a debate, oh, you know what to do, don't you? Attack the person. Nothing like a good bit of ad hominem, eh? But these sinister astrologists do actually identify the root of the issue. They say that they refuse to serve your gods. It's a battle of the gods. The god of the Jews versus the god of the Babylonians. And the king of Babylon takes the bait. Hook, line and sink. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and he ordered that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be brought before him. Well, this guy must have a seriously big ego, maybe 90 feet tall. But he took it very, very seriously when someone said, they don't, look, they don't respect you. It's like, well, let's sort that out. In fact, any re rejection of the state-sanctioned worship was a, seen as a personal attack on the king. And you can't expect that to go down very well. And it doesn't. Verse 13b, when they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue that I've set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I've made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what god will be able to rescue you from my power? This king seems to have a pretty short memory. These are the men he chose to lead his country. Why? Because they were the only ones who were able to actually reveal the dream and then interpret it so he could stop having nightmares at night. But forget that. If you don't bow down to my statue, you're going to burn in the oven. And so the king threatens the Jews with death. As I was going through this, I thought, you know, I don't reckon that this was one of those weekend sort of DIY Babylon Bunnings kind of things. I don't think it was a weekend thing that got this statue of 90 feet of gold. It's been going on for months and months and months and months and months. And this problem of, well, do we bow down? Well, we're not going to bow down. How's that? What's he going to do? It must have been around for a while. You'd think there'd already be a challenge to... The whole idea, thinking about the challenge to religious freedom. But this Jewish rebellion has annoyed the king so much that he threatens these ones, that he has actually raised to power. And he gives them the challenge. And then what? God will be able to rescue you from my power. There it is. Head to head. Power versus power. And the three men from Jerusalem had to risk their life for a choice. Are they going to follow the powerful, threatening king of the land? Or will they stick with the, the God of Jerusalem? Remember, Jerusalem's now in rubbles. That God doesn't look so impressive. Are they going to stick with him? Well, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. 
It reminds me of that, that great Charles Spurgeon quote. Defend the Bible? I would as soon defend a lion. It's a bit like that, isn't it? Oh, you want, to, you want me to stand up for God? Probably won't need to do that. Thanks, though. The Jews knew that God was on their side. They had no doubt at all. And they don't need to defend themselves or the true and living God. And they say, our God's able to save us and he'll rescue us from your power. It really is power versus power. The, the powerful God of the universe versus this guy. Who rules really? But quite strikingly, there's, there's a sort of a... An, they kind of anticipate that there might be another alternative, that maybe God won't rescue them. Have a look at this. But even if he doesn't rescue us, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we'll never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Interesting, isn't it? He says, God will save us. But even if he doesn't appear to, we'll still reject your orders. I think there's something quite refreshing about this response. It recognises that God's will is greater than ours and we don't always understand how and why God works. Sometimes he will perform an amazing miracle to save his people. But sometimes he won't. Doesn't mean that God isn't good. Doesn't mean that God isn't strong. Doesn't mean that God isn't real. It just means that God knows best. Every time. And his plan is better than ours. Six years ago, Mike Ovey died at the age of 58 from a heart attack. Uh, Mike lectured me at Moore College for a year, after which he returned to his home in the UK, where he became principal of Oak, Flat, uh, Oak Hill College, Oak, Flats, Oak Hill College in London. Uh, Mike was one of the great thinkers and thought leaders of evangelical Anglicanism in the UK and Europe and indeed the world. And as we gathered in Jerusalem in 2018 for the third International GAFCON conference, you could really feel that he was missed. And as Orthodox Anglicanism is under constant attack from those at the highest level of authority, even at that, God's plan was for Mike to be taken to be with Jesus at 58. Why did God take him at just the time we needed a strong voice to defend the gospel? You know what the answer is? I don't know. It doesn't mean that God isn't good or strong or real. We just need to know that God's plan is better than ours. And sometimes we'll never know why God does what he does. But we've got to trust him. If you look at all and just says, this just doesn't make sense. It's like, well, you're just going to trust God. But it's hard to trust God when it just doesn't make sense. It's like, you've just got to trust God. And that's what Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego did. Because in their steadfastness, the king raged. Verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage and he commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. The attack became very personal. I don't want those people just to fry. I want them to fry seven times hotter. 
And so, verse 20, he ordered some of the strongest men of the army to bind, to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. And so they tied them up, threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. It just seems like the end. And that's the end of the story. Cremated. And just to see how hot it was, verse 22, because the king in his anger demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. And then this happened. But suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisers, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Oh, yes, Your Majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Something's clearly gone wrong. The king's sitting back, watching the death of these three men like it's some sort of blood sport at the Colosseum. But something's weird. Verse 25. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men, unbound, walking around in the fire, unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. Sort of the stuff of fairy tales, isn't it? Not only are there three men walking around, they're not tied up anymore, they don't, they're not on fire. There's another guy there. He looks like a god. This is divine intervention at the highest level, a spectacular divine intervention. And in their darkest moment, they were never alone. So what's the king going to do about it? Just think about it. One real option is he's going to be even more angry. He said, well, that's not going to work. I'll just starve him to death. And nobody needs to know about this. Because if this gets out, I'm going to look like an idiot. But what does he do? Then Nebuchadnezzar, verse 26, came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace without catching on fire. And he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Um, yeah, of course they did. <laughs> the king recognises that they've been protected. And he calls them servants of the Most High God. It's the most extraordinary backflip you could ever imagine. He's set up a duel between him and the Jewish God and he's lost. So what does he do? Does he get all angry? Does he do a dummy spit? Does he try and cover up the evidence? Well, we'll see in a moment. But just to prove it, verse 27, we see that the high officers, officials, governors, advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. It's amazing. The true God rules and the king does look stupid. So how does he respond? Verse 28, then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Man, this guy's a gymnast. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command, that my command, uh, the king's command, I'm talking about me in the third person, and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. What does he do? He's a smart king. He honours the sacrifice of the Jews. He recognises the strength of their character and their determination never to give up on God. Oddly, in a moment, oddly at this moment, 
It's when the king actually rules as he should. He recognises the true God and he worships that true God truly. I mean, the Lord has rescued his servants even though it seemed impossible and he honours the fact that they disobeyed the earthly authority. You get that? They disobeyed the earthly authority and the earthly authority honours it. This has been a big issue for us over the last two years. Who thought that we'd live through a time when the Premier of New South Wales would issue a decree saying it is not lawful to stand and sing songs of praise to God in church? Never. Or even more, that we would be told not to attend church at all. Surely not. But when we sat down and listened to our daily Gladys updates, remember them, we did what we were told. Why? Wouldn't we have been better off to defy Queen Gladys and fill the church with rebellious worshippers? You know, and then when the police stormed into the building in hazmat gear and tear gas, we'd be willingly dragged off to jail in defiance. So why didn't we? Why didn't we refuse to obey when we're told not to pray? Well, we weren't exactly told not to pray. But what we did is we, we weren't being asked to reject Jesus. We were being asked to show love for others by slowing the spread of COVID till the vaccine was developed and distributed. But if we were told to reject Jesus and instead bow down to a giant statue, then we, we would be prepared to go to the flames. It's like, bring it on. But it's not always clear, is it? So we need to pray for wisdom before choosing civil disobedience. And we need to pray for those who are faced with a genuine risk of losing their life. Right this very hour, somewhere on the planet. Well, what happened next with the king and the divinely rescued fire dancers? Verse 29, he says, Therefore I make this decree, if any people, whatever their race or national language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. He has a way with words. He basically, well, he doesn't need a parliament because that's his job, one man, but he sets up a religious discrimination bill and it gets passed unanimously, of course. And he says, we are going to protect the people who worship the true and living God. No more talk about gold statues and musical chairs of worship, but whatever it is, he recognises that the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego is true and living. And he follows it up with a pay rise. Verse 30, the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. And that's how our passage ends today. It's a remarkable turnaround. You can imagine that these Jewish leaders were just, their heads were just spinning with the dramatic rescue of, of just being out of the fiery tomb. I mean, that's pretty amazing, of course. But then to see this turnaround in the attitude of the king is remarkable. You know, the pressure to conform to the world is growing, isn't it? All the time. If things keep going the way we've seen, I think it won't be long before we are told what we can and can't pray for in church in Australia. 
And I'm thinking particularly about the whole controversy over the so-called conversion theory. A conversion therapy, sorry. The conversion therapy. See, when the government tells me that I'm not allowed to pray publicly for someone who is struggling with same-sex attraction, then you can expect me and others to defy the government. The world can tell me to bow down to the woke statue that they've been constructing, but it will not let them tell me who to pray to. But thankfully in Australia, the most we might get is a short prison sentence. In other parts of the world, they're getting executed for far less. But even King Nebuchadnezzar realised that there is no other God who can rescue like this. The Apostle Paul knew this. He knew it so well. And so I want to end with this from the first chapter of Philippians. He said, I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that's happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, notes that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. Amen. Let's sing.